Well, good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me? I'll try and speak up a bit. I know that they, we've been trying to get the sound equipment right. We've got a brilliant team up there, but I know some people couldn't hear me last night, and so hopefully this morning. Maybe you didn't want to hear me. Those who don't want to hear me, move to the back. I think it's quieter there. Well, as I said last night, thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, if nothing else, I had a great meal last night and a fantastic breakfast this morning. Has anyone ever had toast with damson jam and scrambled eggs? No, you've heard it here. I think there's money to be made on this. It was fantastic. As soon as I walked in here, though, I feel rather replete and a button burst off my waistcoat. (laughs) (laughs) Look at that, the observant. So anyone with a needle and thread will sort that later. Well, last night we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse uh, 3 to 14. If you've got a Bible, perhaps you'd like to turn to it. And we saw that this was Paul letting the Ephesian church know exactly what was theirs in Christ Jesus. What had God given to them in Jesus? What had the gospel procured for them? And we saw the most amazing predicates, as it were, that are attached to the Christian life. How God has forgiven us of our sins. He has redeemed us from sin, death, and hell. He has adopted us into his family. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, that we've been marked in him, sealed with the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And just one after another, Paul lists these things that are ours in Christ Jesus. And they all come in him. That phrase is repeated many times. And when we understand these things and grasp them, then we will truly live. And another phrase that keeps coming is to the praise of his glory, the praise of his glorious grace. We're those who are accepted in the beloved. We are loved. We are chosen. We are predestined. We are sealed. We are forgiven. I mean, it's completely amazing. And the world has nothing like this. It can't get anywhere near this. This is what God does for us. This is what God offers to us in Christ Jesus. And if you are a Christian, that is yours. That is your inheritance. It's completely amazing. I think much of my uh, role as a minister is simply to remind the saints of what God has already done for them. I think if only we could grasp some of those things in verse 3 to verse 14 of chapter 1, our lives would never be the same. We just wouldn't be taken out by the world in the way that we so often are attracted and tempted and deviated by the flesh. We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't feel bowed down and crushed at times and so depressed or anxious as often some of us do. If only we could understand who we are to him and what he has given to us in Jesus. And I do encourage you, saints, to, to, to study this verse, verse, especially verse 3 to 14. As I said, one sentence in the Greek, the longest sentence in the New Testament, um, without punctuation in the original Greek. And it's all a retrospective look 
You don't have to earn this. You don't have to merit this. You don't have to work hard for this. You don't have to pray this up. You don't have to go and get this stuff. It's already ours. This is who we are. This is what we have. And we need to possess our possessions. We need to appropriate what is ours. You know, sometimes I open my my, uh, cupboard and I think, here's a shirt I haven't seen in a long time. I think I'll try that one on. I mean... I know you're thinking, great shirt, Vicar. Um, and I, look, I do, I think, so I think, wow, I bought that. And I, There are things, the other day I found a pair of shoes that I'd bought in the sale. It's 300 quid down to 70, bargain. In the bo- I bought them a year ago, in the box, in the cupboard. I haven't worn them, and I found them, and I thought, oh, yeah, I remember buying them. Put them on, I haven't got them with me. Should have brought them, nice. Fantastic. And sometimes we've, we simply haven't, enjoyed and appreciated and appropriated all that's been given to us. They're just in the cupboard. And maybe part of this weekend is God just reminding us what is ours so that we can get it out and just revel in it. That we're chosen. What a thing. I've never gotten over it. God chose me. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. He chose that. He chose you, and he loves you, and he's for you, and he thought about you before the world was created. He had you in mind when he got to work on it. It's an amazing thing. But Paul doesn't leave it there. And what I want to talk about in the two sessions this morning is the more that God has got to give to us. I've got two amazing sons, teenagers now, and, um, you know, big strapping lads. But I, I can't help it. I just spoil them. They can have anything I've got. And my wife, Tiffany, often says, it's a sort of litany in our family, you just spoil them. You're just spoiling your boys. And again, I, I often reply to Tiffany, yeah, but I'm a dad. That's what I do. That's what dads do. And the Bible says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He is the God who always wants to give us more. He doesn't say, you've had your lot, that's it, make do. He says, there's always more. And the great sadness, I think, in the heart of God is that often we don't come back for the more. If I went to my sons on their birthday or Christmas or just some random act of fatherly kindness to them said, I've, I've bought you this. And they said, Dad, you can keep it. I've already got some stuff that you've given me before. How do you think I'd feel? If I went into their bedroom and found all the presents I gave them for their birthday un- unwrapped uh, or unused, stuffed in a cupboard, how do you think I'd feel? And yet often we just fail to receive and enjoy all that God has got for us and all the more that he wants to give to us. Billy Graham, that great saint, made this observation. He said, wherever I go, he went a lot of places, wherever I go, I find that God's people lack something. It's a fascinating statement because Billy Graham was an evangelist, and most evangelists don't care about the church. (laughs) They care about those who aren't in church. They get some, and then they go and get some more in. 
But he said, everywhere I go, I find God's people lack something. And the fact is, he worked with the best of God's people. He traveled the world, doing amazing evangelistic campaigns with God's frontline troops. You know, men and women full on for God, who loved mission and loved their community and wanted to, to see people one for Christ. Everywhere I go, he says, God's people lack something. They're hungry for something. This is a quote. He says their Christian experience is not all that they expected and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. I won't ask for a show of hands. Who's not perfect? Anyone disappointed? Anyone ever have recurring defeat in your life? He goes on and says Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment The greatest need of the nation today, says Billy Graham, is that men and women who profess Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's absolutely right. God's people sadly fail to avail themselves of all that God has given to them. In Robert Browning's play The Ring in the Book, there's a scene where the Pope is talking to his chaplain and he says, is this it? Is this thing salvation? We expected more. God wants us to live up and appreciate and appropriate all that he's given us and he wants to give us more. If you've got a Bible, let's just look forward a bit to Philippians. One of the things that marks the Apostle Paul's life is that both for himself and for his churches, he was always eager for them to get everything that God had got for them. And so in Philippians chapter 3, and... Verse 10. Philippians 3, verse 10, page 1180 in the church Bibles. He's writing to the Philippians. He's in jail. We're not sure whether he's going to be released. Some people think there was a release and then he's taken back in. But tradition tends to think that this is among his last letters and he's about to have his head cut off by Nero in the persecution mid-60s. And here he is writing to the church at Philippi and he's encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice and he's celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And here we have this amazing little autobiographical sort of insight. He says, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He goes on, not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I'm straining towards what is ahead, and I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now, I think that's an amazing little sentence or two. 
Paul's about to die. And he knows that in every city he's been to, the Holy Spirit has warned him he would be arrested and ultimately tried and executed. And here he is, right into the Philippians, saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, and the fellowship of his sufferings, identifying fully with him at the cross and receiving everything from it. It's an extraordinary thing. You, you would think a man who's about to die would be getting his, his, his things in order. But instead he's writing to the church to encourage them. I wonder if the Philippians, when they received it, would say, chill out, man. You know, or something like that. Or as my teenage boys would say, chill on the dill, dad. <laughs> chill on the dill. I mean, you know, chill out, chillax. Come on, Paul, you've planted churches all the way through Asia Minor. You've pushed on up into Europe. I mean, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. You've written half the New Testament. You've healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons. I mean, you've done well. You know, you've got the VC for services to the king. This'll, it'll, you're all right. Now chill out and get yourself ready because you're about to lose your head. I mean, you can understand that. If Paul had said, I think I've done my bit and I'm retiring. But the amazing thing is that here, this elderly apostle is saying, I want to know him. And he knew there was still, he's going to know him fully when he gets to glory soon. But whilst he's there waiting to be transported, I want to know him. And the power of the resurrection, Romans 1.4, it's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of the spirit. And the fellowship of his sufferings. I want, to, I want to squeeze everything out of the cross. He says, one thing I do. We do so many things and we often miss the most important. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. A straining. I'm exerting all my energy and effort to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. I want to fulfill my destiny. I want to fulfill the call on my life. And I want to fully receive everything that he has for me in this life before I get to the life to come. I love that. That is the mark of the man. That he never settled for too little. That he wanted, he wanted to honor Christ in his death by receiving everything that Christ had died to give him. Some Christians give their life to the Lord and then they just hang on in there until they get to heaven. And everything is somehow posited to the future. But, but God wants to bring part of that heaven to us here on earth now. And Paul wanted to lay hold of it. He wanted to lay hold of it for himself. He wanted to lay hold of it for his churches. So, um, well, let's just go forward as we're at the end of Philippians. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. Paul here is praying for the church at Colossae. Verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, that's the mark of a church leader, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. And the translation is not the best here, but literally it says, through the spirit of wisdom and understanding. They're already saved. 
They're already Christians. They're already the church. But Paul is praying for something over and above that. More. The spirit of wisdom and understanding to know his will. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Many of us, me included, do do not live a life worthy of the Lord. And Paul knew that about them. And somehow living a life worthy of the Lord comes about through receiving more of the Spirit and more of an understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. And then it goes on and says, I'm pleasing him in every way. Hands up if you please God in every way. Quite. There's a reason why in every Anglican service we start with a confession, because we need to. Pleasing him in every way. Wouldn't it be wonderful to get to heaven and the Lord Jesus to say, dude, well, not that you say that, sorry, that was, you say, son, <laughs> brother, you please me in every way. I've been watching you. You please me in every way. What a thing. What a church that would be if everyone pleased God in every way. And then look, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. Good works. Honoring him. Bearing fruit of character in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. See all these things? Paul is praying for more for them. To know and to grow. And then, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Again, I don't want to sound like a snotty Oxford type, but that's not the best translation. The Greek actually says, empowered by the power of his mighty glory. Glory is the noun in the Greek. Mighty is an adjective, but the NIV changes it around. He wants us to bear fruits about character, but then empowered by the power of his powerful glory. Paul just builds up this sort of rhetoric to make the point that the mark of the church is to, to know him, to know his will, to reflect him, to, to, to be growing, to be bearing fruit, and to be marked by the power of God, empowered by the power of his powerful glory. Now that isn't true in my life, and if Tiffany was here, she'd have shouted amen at that point. It's not, but I know it's possible. Paul knew it was possible for them and knew it was desirable and he prayed for it and it's here recorded for us by the Spirit in sacred scripture because it's truth for us. Don't you want to bear fruit? Aren't you tired of some of those attitudes, some of those issues and just some of that that baggage that you carried for so long? Don't you want to be different? Don't you want to be more like Christ? Wouldn't you like the power of the Holy Spirit? Some of us need God's power to control our appetites or to control our actions or to direct our... We need God's power in our life. We're, we're the people of God, but so often we don't look much like it, do we, really? I know what you're thinking. Well, you don't. I know, I know I don't. God wants us to look like Jesus. And that comes through the work of the Spirit conforming us both into his character, his likeness, but also sharing in his ministry through his power. Let's go back to Ephesians. It's a nice verse, isn't it? Now, back in Ephesians. We had this read last night by Will. So in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 to verse 14, they've looked, he's looked backwards. This is all that is yours and we need that. And then between verse 14 and verse 15, there's a 
complete change. In your Bible, is there a big gap? Yeah? There's a big space. You could put a finger through that, drive a truck through it. It's very telling. I think a lot of people fall through that gap. I mean, they never actually get as far as verse 14, really. But many get as far as verse 14, and they're thanking God for all that is theirs, but they, they fall, they, you know, you've got to mind the gap, as they say. Because at verse 15, everything changes, and Paul starts praying. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and I keep on asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Where have we heard that before? Colossians chapter 1. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably or incomparably great power for us who believe. What a prayer. That's what Paul is praying for them. It's all in the future tense. It's all, for those who care about a bit of grammar, in the subjunctive mood. It's a maybe, may, that you may have this. You haven't got it already. I pray that you may. You haven't, but you may. And what is he praying for them to have? The spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. God wants us to know him better. For, for many here, you believe in him, but do you know him? St. Paul says, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. And so on. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to know. You believe I've got a wife called Tiffany. I've told you about it, but I know her. Belief gets you saved, but belief is, is the beginning. It should lead into a deeper knowing. And Paul is praying for these Ephesians that they would know who they believe. Later on, when he says, I know whom I believed, he writes that to Timothy, who was the apostle in Ephesus. You've got to know what you believe. That you might know him better. This weekend, it's all about that. I think you're amazing coming out on a Saturday morning. You know, it's my job, but you've paid to come here. Amazing. You know what I mean? You could have been in Tesco's. <laughs> Watching some cooking program on Saturday morning TV. You could have had a lion. Eggs and dams and jam on toast. <laughs> but no, you're here. Why? Because you wouldn't be here unless... I mean, I know partly you're here because your friend said, come on, you've got to come. But apart from that, you're here because you want to know him better. And he wants you to know him better. He knows everything about you, but he wants you to know more about him. That you might know him better and that comes by the holy spirit and so we need more of the spirit what's it you know some people are afraid of the holy spirit they think it it'll make you weird i mean you might but it'll make you weird and do crazy things and act odd and shake and you know i mean you know and norfolk folk don't go in for that stuff but the work of the spirit is to reveal jesus to us first and foremost 
And so when we ask for more of the Spirit, it's not so that we can go, ooh, I felt, you know, I fell over. Or, ooh, it's not, you know, whatever. It's about knowing Him. I've been in hundreds of contexts with people falling everywhere. I don't mind if they fall over. You want to fall over? Fall over. If it's the Holy Spirit doing that, fine. What matters is what are you like when you get up? Do you know him better? And he wants us to know him better. He really wants you to get to know him better. And then he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you... Which he's called you. The eyes of your heart opened. What a bizarre thing to say. I mean, if you had to draw that as a picture, it'd be weird, wouldn't it? Like a heart, <laughs> valves, and then eyes everywhere. You know, you'd think you'd been on LSD or something. What sort of eyes of your heart? What's he saying? What he's saying, I think, is this that there, there is a knowing of God that goes beyond a kind of rational propositional, intellectual kind of forming. And, you know, God gave us scripture, so it's important to understand propositions and rational sentences and doctrine and all of that stuff. I love all that. But there is a knowing that surpasses this stuff, that you almost couldn't explain it. I couldn't put into words my love for my wife. You know, I resort to poetry. When my kids were little, you know, I would hold my little son's and I loved them so much. I remember writing a letter for one of them. It's in my drawer. He's never seen it. I'll give it to him. Maybe I'll never give it to him. He'll read it when, I, when I'm dead. And I just wanted to tell him how much I loved him. And, and I brought all the best of my language to bear. Now, there's this letter, handwritten out. Oh, it was for the day he was baptized when he was about three months old. Just, I loved him. We, we waited a long time. We had difficulty having children. When he came, I loved him. But when he was just a little baby, I couldn't, he can't understand propositions. And I would just want to hold him and almost squeeze him into me and, and go, or something like that. You know? I mean, you just resort to like weirdness. <laughs> the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. It's at the level of the heart, not just the mind. It's through our affections, not just our understanding. And there is a seeing and a knowing in that place of our affection, even our emotion, of a knowing of God. Many of you believe in him, but actually he's never really grabbed hold of your heart. First commandment, the greatest commandment, is to love God with all your head. Is that what it says? Even you know it doesn't say that. Not first. With your heart. That's a Hebraism. The heart was the center of the operating system of life but at the core of our being there must be this bursting with affection for God because at the core of his there is one for us the eyes of your heart enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the thing that should mark the people of God is hope if only we could get this we would just those shadows, that gloom, that fear of the future, that anxiety, the worry, these things would dissipate as the light shines. The hope, we're the hope people. Natalie's got an amazing anchor cross. I love it. But it's about hope, symbol of hope. We're secured through Christ and we're the people of hope. 
Some of you are worried about the future. You're worried about your job security. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about your pension fund. You're worried about how you're going to manage in old age. You're worried about what's going to happen to your body or your mind as you get older. You're wor- you know, you're just living in worry. Just fear and anxiety awaits you. It's just sort of looming ahead of you. But God wants us to be the people filled with hope. Paul, in jail, writing these letters, is not full of worries, full of hope. Things can only get better. And he may well lose his head any moment, but in the twinkling of an eye, he's going to be with the Lord. We're the hope people. Do you know what I mean? Personally, I've got a lot of hope in the government. I've got a lot of hope in, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer, in the bank. I don't have a lot of hope. Things are not good, are they? We need to pray for our leaders. But things are in a mess that, Nation's in huge debt. Fortunately, unemployment is dropping. But we're, you know, we're not in the best of places, are we? A lot of people thinking, let's leg it and go to Australia. <laughs> no, we hang on here, for those who are called to. But <laughs> heaven awaits us. We're the hope people. And then it talks about his glorious inheritance in the saints. Can you see that? Actually, the Greek can be read in two ways. One of the ways it can be read and translated is God's glorious inheritance, the saints. And one legitimate reading is to say that we're God's inheritance. What has he got to look forward to? We're his inheritance. That's a legitimate reading of it. The other is that we have an inheritance. Both are true. I think it's a deliberate ambiguity in the Greek by Paul. We've got an inheritance from God. You know, I visit my elderly parents uh, often down in the West Country, and my dad, he's a collector of rubbish. I mean, he calls it antiques, but to be honest, I think you should go and flog it. You know, cash in the attic and just get rid of this stuff. Don't want it? I go in there and, son, you know, this is a Sumerian pot. I think, who cares? I don't care. I mean, on one occasion, he showed me something. Here is a Bronze Age comb. Look at this. Snap. And he snapped it in front of me. (laughs) Been in the ground a thousand years. But often, it's like that with Dad. My Dad, I don't know why. One day, son, it'll all be yours. One day, son, it'll all be yours. I say, flog it now and give me the money in advance. I'd rather have it now. And God says to us, One day, my son, this will all be yours. One day, my daughter, this will all be yours. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We have a glorious, there is a glorious inheritance. And Paul, you know, so often we live for the now and the substantial and this stuff. But this is fleeting and flimsy. We're the people with an inheritance in heaven that can't perish or tarnish or spoil and if we could get that we'd be free from so much that clings to us here there's more to know him know him in our hearts to know hope to know this inheritance and then lastly he talks about power and his incomparably great power for us who believe That power is like the working of his mighty strength. 
which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And he wants us to know this incomparable. Would you say incomparably or incomparably in Norfolk? Hands up for incomparably. Hands up for incomparably. Interesting. (laughs) I can't think there are any alternative renderings. But anyway, without comparison, isn't it? Without comparison, there's power for us. And we need the power, I already touched, we need the power in our, to just take control of our tongue, take control of our eyes, take control of our attitudes, take control of that sort of petulance that rises up in us sometimes and overspills. And we need the power of God so we can live for him more effectively and serve him more fruitfully. We need his power. And the thing is, there is power. And the Ephesians needed the power. And Paul says, I'm praying for you to get the power. It is the desire of God that we would be empowered by the power of his powerful glory. And he's given it to us, and we need to get it. Are you with me? Thanks for that. Uh, Okay. That's the first thing. I got 27 points. Right, second. So there's, there's a desire for more. There's, there's prayer for more. There's clearly more to be avail- made available to us. What stops us getting it? And, and I'll, I'll talk on this for the next 15 minutes until we go up to some more worship and a bit of prayer and then we'll have a cup of tea. What stands in the way? Well, let me suggest a number of things. Obstacles, barriers, hindrances, handbrakes that somehow keep us from laying hold of everything for which Christ laid hold of us. The first is, and they all begin with a U, sorry about that, it's sort of my Baptist roots, unrecognized riches. For those who care, taking notes, unrecognized riches. Often the people of God simply don't know what is theirs. I was with someone actually this week who told me that, um, talking about inheritances, they were saying that their, their, their dear mother had been in a, a, a home for a few years and they thought that that had eaten up all their sort of reserves that she had and, you know, they weren't going to inherit anything. And, but when she finally passed away, unbeknown to them, she had, she'd been sat on pots of money. And he'd just suddenly come into all this money and, you know, he, he didn't know what to do with it. We had, and we had an interesting conversation about that but he didn't actually realize what was coming to him and many of us are we simply we're rather ignorant of what what God has got for us and what God has given for us and the reason is that we we don't really know our Bibles and we don't actually understand some of us the pathways of God and his provisions for us, and his promises that he's made to us. So we don't actually know what's on offer. We don't actually know the menu. And God wants us to, and I think I'll talk about this tomorrow morning, to give ourselves to Scripture so that we can understand all that God wants from us, but all that God wants to give us. You see, 
our experience of God will never rise higher than our expectations of what we're going to get from God. And if we don't expect much, we're probably not going to get much. Paul wants to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of him. And he knows what Christ has laid hold of for him. And he's going after it. Paul is having to tell the Ephesians that this stuff is on offer. But they don't know. And God has given us this book. So that we can understand who he is. What he's done for us. What is ours in Christ Jesus. And how we are to live with him. And we need to devote ourselves to reading this book. Some of you don't find that easy. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow, I think. But we need to search the scriptures, not only to know him better, but also to see what what he wants from us and what he's got for us. The, The glorious riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And many of us don't realize that there are riches of his glorious, I'm avoiding the sun. I'm not sure if I'm having a sort of St. Paul on the road to Damascus experience. I've said, yes, Lord, who art thou? You know. um, anyway, it's nice, uh, keeping me warm. <laughs> Un- <laughs> I've gone blind, I can't see my notes. <laughs> Unrecognized riches. We need a biblical line of expectancy. That's what my mate Vaughan Roberts says. Sometimes, sometimes Christians can get nuts, let's be honest especially some of those charismatic types. And I say that as a charismatic type, you know, I, I've got the T-shirt and you know, I've written the books on it, you know, and I, you know, I can do all of that. And, but sometimes they're wacky and they've actually gone over and above scripture and they're asking for things that are not promised. They're expecting things that, that, that simply aren't there in the book. And that's a problem and that needs tidying up. But an equal problem, if not worse, is that we don't expect anything. You remember Oliver Twist? Little Oliver in the orphanage, up he comes. I forgot, what, what's his name? I forgot the name of the, um, Mr. Bumble? Yeah, there it was, it was there. And he was sat at the table, and there's all this food, and they're eating a bit of gruel, and um, he comes up, please, sir, can I have some more? And Mr. Bumble goes, more! <laughs> and he's in real trouble then. <laughs> Everyone else didn't, you know, everyone else knew you can't go up and ask for more. And sometimes we think, we think of God a bit like that. We think, well, just a, God's all right. He's up there eating well, and we'll just have this bowl of soup. Psalm 23, what does it say? He lays a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Normally in the presence of your enemy, you're frightened. The adrenaline's running and you can't keep your food in. You wouldn't want to eat anyway. But with God, he spreads a banquet. You tuck in that. Most of my metaphors relate to food. <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm a good eater. Um, what was I saying? More, yeah. So he wants to give us more. He wants to say, look, this is, I, I've spread a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And you just think it's, there's only soup that's on offer. God is not Mr. Bumble. He says the table is spread. The banquet is spread. Come, come and eat. That's what Paul is saying. Glorious riches. We need to recognize them and we need to get stuck in. What has God got for you? I, God has got something for you this weekend. 
He wants to say something to you. He wants to do something for you. When God appeared to Solomon at the dedication of the temple, God didn't say, what's all this sacrifice for? (laughs) He said, ask, what shall I give you? In In the NIV, I think it says, God said, what do you want? What do you want? What did Jesus say all the time? One of the things Jesus said all the time was, what do you, what do you want? Turn to Andrew. What do you want? Where are you staying? Follow me. Blind Bartimaeus, Mark chapter 10. He's screaming out. Jesus says, call him. And Jesus looked at him. What do you want? Uh, sight? Nice one. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, it's brilliant. Jesus was forever saying, what do you want? And it's not like, what do you want? It's, what do, you, what do you want? And we come in prayer. And he says, what do you want? He's a good God. We need to rethink what God is like. And we know that from Scripture. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those of us? Unrecognized riches. Second, unconfessed sin. The Holy Spirit is called holy because he's holy. Ephesians 1 says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise guaranteeing our inheritance, that deposit. And he comes to live in us at conversion. When we give our life to him, when we say yes to him, he says yes to us, he's already said yes to us in Christ. And he comes and dwells within us. His spirit joins our spirit and we're sealed. We become a temple of the Holy Spirit. But often in our life, it's, there are no-go areas where they're just sort of like compartments or rooms in a house all shut down, and we don't let the Spirit go there. Later on, Paul talks about not grieving the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit, but we can grieve the Spirit. And that can cause, and I don't even know how to articulate this, but it's almost as if he just can't be God in us. That he's shut out and contracted. When the... Um, when David sinned with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And when, when we go on sinning, because he comes to live in sinners through, that he cleanses, but, but he wants us to be clean. He's a Holy Spirit. And he wants to make us holy. But when we resist that working of his spirit, when we continue in sins, and we may not think of them as sins, we may just think, oh, it's just what my mother always did. You know what I mean? It's a family trait. You know, we're, we all snap in our family. You know, it's my nurture. It's not my nature. I can't help it. You know, it's just a family thing. And when we justify wrongdoing in our life, however petty it may seem, there's a sense where we're grieving the spirit. More seriously, if there is some more weighty sin in our life, that that will hinder the operation of the Spirit in and through us. If there's some perpetual sin or habitual sin, or some wrongdoing that we haven't confessed, then we're not going to get any more of the Spirit. And, 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 And it's as if we've put a hand up to him or a handbrake on him and he he can't 
give and be who he is in us. There was a famous preacher, some of you may have heard of him, called David Duplessis. Anyone ever heard of him? He was a wonderful South African man in the 60s and 70s, charismatic renewal. But as a young boy at school, I think in the 40s, maybe early 50s, he'd heard that there was more of the Spirit and he wanted more. He was only a teenager, but he said to his teacher, I'm not coming to school tomorrow because I'm seeking God for more. Teacher said, cool, awesome. You know? and, I mean, she might not have said that. But anyway, he, he didn't go to school. It's, they were farming. They were boors. And he spent the day in the farm praying in, in, in the, um, farm, in the uh, barn. And he prayed all day. More for more of the Spirit. God, fill me with your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Nothing. The elders of the church all turned up, the sort of long men, the old men with the long white beards by his height and that sort of thing, and they all start praying for him. You know, with sound effects. You know, and they walked around him and they blew trumpets and, you know, all of that. They they didn't do that either, I know. But I can see this, nothing happened. At about four o'clock, a girl from his class came by said, I heard that you're seeking God for more of the Spirit today. God spoke to me for you and says, if you confess that sin, you'll get it. And immediately he knew. And it was only a small thing, but he had lied to his parents and his brother had taken the rap for something he had done. Just a small thing. And God was saying, you've got to go and put that right. He went into his parents. He said, Mom, Dad, I'm really sorry. I lied, you know, my brother took the rap, it was me, I'm really sorry. Thank you for telling us, son, we forgive you, grounded for a week or whatever. He went back into the barn, and in his biography, his autobiography, he records that it was like heaven just opened, and the Spirit of God fell upon him. And he was just filled with the Holy Spirit. He became the most amazing evangelist in South Africa. And then he went on from there and, and brought renewal, lit fires wherever he went. He was very involved with charismatic renewal in the David Watson era. Do you remember that, some of you? He met the Pope, and the Pope greeted him, Hello, Mr. Pentecost. <laughs> Somehow, that was, it was just, you know, it was like the finger in the dike. <laughs> it, it was just an obstruction that needed to be dealt with. If you want more of God, you've got to be completely right before him. And that means confessing sins. And, you know, most of you, there won't be anything you think, well, I'd, you know, we don't go digging for sins. The devil goes digging. We don't dig for sins. But if there's something in your life that is not right, and you know that, that a wrong has been done to someone, you've got to go and put it right if you're to go any further with God. Otherwise, you grieve him. And he cannot, you know, he contracts rather than opens up. Another point? An unyielded heart. We can't have the Holy Spirit on our terms. He he doesn't come on our terms. He is the God who says, what do you want? But then he tells us what we need and what what we need often becomes what we want. He gives us the desire of our hearts. 
often we can treat God like the lodger. You know, you know, you just got a room upstairs, pays a bit of rent, helps us with the bills. God's not the lodger in our life. He's not the luggage in the back of the car. You know, he is the Lord, as the creed says, the giver of life. And so if you want more of the Holy Spirit, you have more of the Holy Spirit on his terms, and you need to realize it's more of the Lord. And at that point, many people say, well, I'd rather be in charge, thanks very much. I don't mind being saved, but I, I want him to be my savior, but not my Lord. And often we hold things back. And we, there are no-go areas in our life. Oswald Chambers, great saint, said that the secret of the spirit-filled life was one word, abandonment. And if we're to have more of the spirit, then, then it, 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 he gets it all. I will be... I'll be who you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I am yours to use, to pick up, to put down, to do what you want with. I am yours because you are the Lord. And you, you, you set the terms, not me. And many of us, perhaps we don't even trust God. We think he's going to send me off to be a missionary in Uzbekistan and I don't want to do that. The fact is that if he really filled us with his spirit, we'd want to do it. If he was calling us to do it. Yeah, we, he's God. And he isn't there just for our entertainment. If we want more of him, that we have him on his terms. And then, two more minutes, is that all right? Unbelief. It's a real problem. <clears throat> Not unbelief in the sense that God wouldn't, God hasn't got any more of the Spirit for me, although that is a problem, and that is based on a misunderstanding of what Scripture says. But an unbelief that God would bless me. And many people feel this. I meet many people when I'm teaching on these subjects that they just almost have such a deeply formatted insecurity in their life that they think God would never bless me. Never ever, as they say in the West Country, he would never bless me. He might bless you and he might bless you, but, you know, I've been hard done by. No one's ever looked after me. Everything I've got, I've got by the work of my own hands. Parents left me nothing. And somehow we, we can be so deeply ingrained with insecurity or a sense of inferiority or a sense of independence. I don't need anyone or anything. Or we can have a, a real re- sense of rejection and that leads to a willful self-protection or a fear of rejection by others that actually we simply do not think God will give us anything else. And maybe we've gone forward for prayer sometimes and other people have got the gifts of the Spirit and someone's spoken in tongues and someone else. But us, we're like, nothing. Not a whisper, you know. And, And we end up believing God, you know, God ain't got anything for me. There isn't any more. 
And we need God to somehow do some surgery in our souls so that we understand who he is and what he has for us. And that calloused, hard skin over our soul, if you like, is softened in order for us to be able to receive from him. You know, some of you think, well, I'm just not the type. <laughs> I'm just not the type to get filled with the Spirit. God ain't going to do it to me. Never has done. Doesn't answer my prayers anyway. Well, he does. And he will. And he has got something for you. It says in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 32. I'll make sure. Yeah, it says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? He gave us the best thing that he had. The very best. His son. He gave us himself to come and live with us by his spirit. What makes us think he's going to hold back answering our prayers and filling us with his spirit according to all the principles laid out here. The last thing would be an undiscerned enemy. A.W. Tozer, a great spiritual writer, said, Satan has opposed the doctrine of the spirit-filled life as fiercely as any other. I think after the cross, it's the spirit-filled life. These, he go, he, the devil hates the blood and the devil hates the spirit-filled life. The devil will do anything he can to stop people coming to Christ. And then if he can't stop them coming to Christ, he'll stop them being filled with the Holy Spirit and getting all that Christ has laid up for them. As soon as Jesus was filled with the Spirit at baptism, all hell let loose, literally, in the wilderness. And the demonic comes and attacks Jesus and tries to take from Jesus that anointing And that vocation that his father had just spoken over him. Invariably in the spirit-filled life there is a confrontation with the demonic. Who has the most to gain from you gaining the least from God? It's the devil. Augustine, the martyr, said... The Holy Spirit trains our hands with weapons for war. And a spirit-filled Christian is a dangerous thing in the hands of God. And so the devil doesn't want you filled with the Spirit and he will do everything he can. Don't listen to this. This is rubbish. That bloke's an idiot. God hasn't got any more for you. You just stick with what you got. You're doing all right, lass. And he will just try to lie and to keep you or, or what makes you think God would give you anything, you loser? You're not even saved anyway. I mean, what about that sin? I know all about it. The devil's foul. And he is out to stop you getting everything God's got for you. Why? Because he doesn't want you to be blessed. He doesn't want Christ to be glorified. And he doesn't want you to be equipped to serve God more effectively. And so he will go. To, he will try to stop you being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to press through that stuff. 
and come to the Father who spreads a table before us. Come to the Father who wants us to be empowered by the power of his powerful glory, who wants us to know him, who wants us to know hope, who wants us to know his, the strength of his mighty hand in our life, who wants us to just be thrilled at the prospect that we're his inheritance and he has one for us. And it all comes by the Spirit. Amen?